0: so um in isaiah fifty one uh the Lord was saying that he will you know comfort Zion, even you know Jerusalem, Israel, even though they are um in sin and experiencing God's punishment and his uh correction and to the point that they, as a nation are being conquered by their neighbors and taken away in captivity. And the Lord assures them that he's going to comfort them. But he then puts that call forward of, you know, awake, O arm of the Lord. Their need of rescue and the ransom that uh, was needed for them and how they would be brought back and not have to drink the cup of God's wrath anymore. So in Isaiah 52, at verse 1, it begins by saying, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city for the uncircumcised, and the unclean shall no longer come to you. So this is the third time the Lord has said, through the prophet Isaiah, awake, awake. The first, awake, awake, asked the Lord to put on his strength, awake, and put on your strength, Isaiah fifty-one nine. The second, awake, awake, asked Jerusalem to remember the Lord's judgment and promises. So, the idea of, you know, the believers need to wake up, like God needs to be roused to awakening to take care of them. And then they, as a people, need to be awakened and remember God's judgment and his promises. And now the third awake, awake, tells Zion, Jerusalem, Israel, to put on strength in light of the first two awakenings that are mentioned. So, you know, the need for us, for people, for believers to rely upon the strength of the Lord, the promises of the Scripture. When we're struggling, um, you know, you can read things in the Scripture, and um, the contrast is so dramatic between, uh, you know, the, the the promises of God. We might read in the Scripture the encouragement, the encouragement we might see, uh, you know, the challenge that the Lord might put forward to us to to walk with Him and and to live. Uh, with him uh, to live the Christian life, you know that, that that contrast of that high encouragement to the depth of where we are, our struggle, our our failure. Even God is saying, you need to wake up and you need to clothe yourself in my strength. You need to stop this weakness and and, and behave in the way that uh, is reflective of the strength that God is lending us. Giving us through his holy Spirit, so then in verse two, shake yourself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion now that again you know if you're in the mid- if you're a slave, if you've been captured by the Assyrians or the Babylons and the Babylonians, the Babylons you know, the the Babylonians and you're you're in captivity. And and somebody's telling you to arise and sit in a place of comfort and shake off these bonds. You know, it sounds like a mockery. The point is, God is saying you're going to be delivered from this. You know, if you're walking into the captivity, you don't know. These people didn't know at first that there was 70 years of captivity ahead of them. So they're just overwhelmed and depressed with the fact that they are now conquered by another nation and have become the slaves of another nation along comes the prophet telling them to you know be encouraged and it just sounds like a misplaced uh, you know remark it isn't misplaced none of the scriptures misplaced as we read through it and you think well that's you know for somebody else i'm not in that place i'm not strong i'm not you know the lord is saying no that is for you you're a slave you're a slave in your sin you, you you captured you destroyed you have no strength you don't see any future i'm telling you you have a future god is saying i'm telling you you need to clothe yourself in strength it's difficult to do to encourage our own Person David had to do it, right? Uh, doesn't he say to himself, "Why are you, you know, my soul? Why are you downcast within me?" You know, hope in God, trust God, rejoice in Him. You have to shift your own focus a lot of the time. Uh, circumstances lie. You know, how how many times have we been in circumstances where it's just black? You know, our friends are around us trying to encourage us. We're like, "It's the end of the world. Nothing's going to get better." And then you turn around in a short distance down the road in your life, everything's good. And it's almost like we forgot that it was bad. And we act like, oh, yeah, no, I knew this was going to turn out this way. Walking with that consistency, and I mean consistency, you know, tonight we're singing, you know, you say, go, I'll go. You say, walk out on the water. Peter... He walked out on the water. What caused him to sink? He looked down at his circumstances and said, this is plain stupid. I'm on water. And he sank. Something that was absolutely impossible to do. He he couldn't walk on water. He had been walking on water, but suddenly failed. Because rather than focusing on the Lord, he was focusing on his circumstances. Shake yourself from the dust. Arise. Sit down. The idea of in peace. O oh, Jerusalem, loose yourself. From the bonds on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you have sold yourself for nothing. You've, you shall be redeemed without money. So in contrast, you sold yourself and got nothing for it. That's, that's a painful thought. You, you gave yourself into this slavery and what did you get out of it? Nothing. Nothing. You you were pursuant of things that destroyed you. You know, it begins uh, for these people in their departure from worshiping the Lord. By the time you get done, all of the sins of every other pagan nation are seen in their midst. They're engaged in outright idolatry to the point where they've now set up idols inside the temple of God. They've completely destroyed themselves. For what purpose? Nothing. Everything they've pursued is hollow and empty and worthless and didn't produce anything but slavery in their lives. Some of us can identify with that better than others. You know, pursuant of the things that do nothing but leave us in bondage. Then the contrast on the other side of that, you'll be redeemed without money. I'm going to get you out of that slavery, God is saying. And I'm not going to pay any sum of currency in order to do it. There was a great cost uh, that the Lord gave, uh, but it wasn't money. It was his life to redeem us. Jesus Christ died for our sins. Now in verse 4, it says, For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there. Then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now, therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them, make them wail, says the Lord. And my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. Now, there are a few things that take place in their existence that were historical occasions that literally happened. Um, In particular, the people of Israel, you know, you think about um, when, just take Babylon. Uh, As they conquered nations around them, uh, they would sell off slaves. So someone could get redeemed by someone purchasing a slave, uh, but now they're going to be a slave to somebody else. God is saying, I'm going to redeem you without money as a nation. So they've been taken captive. They're in Babylon. Uh, The 70 years have passed and the Medo-Persian empire is rising. Babylon has been the world power up until that point. God specifically names Cyrus 200 years before he's even born and says that he is My shepherd, and he's going to free my people. When Cyrus, in his divine wisdom, God's wisdom given to him, makes the decision to dig uh, huge diversion channels and basically drain the Euphrates River, um, you know, diverts it out around. It was flowing under the wall of Babylon, and he diverts it. Out uh, from its natural course, and his, you know uh, Cyrus's army just marches under the wall of Babylon in the middle of light in the night. This that's a historic fact. Walks straight up into the palace where they're celebrating and partying. That you know, so arrogant was Babylon, they knew the Medo Persian army was outside their walls. They had shut their gates and were preparing themselves to endure a tremendously long siege. Not not in fear. They had the attitude the city was so massive that we can take care of ourselves inside these walls. And in particular, the fact that the Euphrates River flowed right under their wall brought them water and life. And so they're thinking, no problem. Medo-Persian Empire, meaningless, was their approach to things. You know, Belshazzar is partying and turns around and Cyrus, king of the Medo-Persian Empire, is inside his home and he's killed and the nation's conquered and the people of Israel, when they're given an opportunity, go to Cyrus As the new conquering king. And they say let us show you where the Lord spoke of you. Right here in the book of Isaiah. Named you 200 years before you were born. Talked specifically about how you were going to march under the walls. And cut the bars of the gates that were under the walls of Babylon. And walk right up inside the city. Cyrus was so blown away by God's ability to predict the future that way that he declared right there on the spot, that Israel would be freed. Without money, without payment, Israel gets to go back to their homeland. It takes a little while, but they're eventually released and they go back. In this process, all of these people of Israel who have lived in rebellion to God, fallen into sin and idolatry, been captured as slaves, and taken away into Babylon have been being freed by God in their hearts and minds from all of that sin. And then when God delivers them from their captivity in Babylon, that's when they know this is our God. He's true. He's not like the other false gods. He's not like these idols that all these other nations have worshipped and and we've fallen into worshipping. Uh, that was the final blow to their idolatry. They never returned to idolatry as a nation. They worship God with a single hearted mind uh, from that point forward. delivered you know so the Lord is saying here, therefore my people shall know my name, therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. It's not some other God. It's not some false God. It's not, you know, a non-existent God. It's the only true living God that has declared these things because they're coming true. Now, a sidestep discussion in this. There's um, the cult of Jehovah's Witnesses that want to insist that this verse is somehow saying that the Jehovah's Witnesses are the only ones that know the true God. Because they, as a people, know his name, and they're the ones who worship him. Well, here's a thought, okay? Um, <clears throat> the name Jesus is probably one of the worst translations of Jesus' name that there is. Um, if we put the Hebrew accent on it and pronounced it as it is written, then you're, you get the name Yeshua, which is Yahweh's salvation. It's a compound name. Uh, If you translated it directly into English, it would be Joshua. So, uh, you know, this name, uh, Jesus, uh, that we worship, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses say, no, Jehovah is God, and that's the only way you're going to get salvation is if you worship Jehovah. Well, again... Jehovah is one of the worst possible translations of God's name. Um, we don't know what his name is or how it would be pronounced. I've talked about this a lot of times. The people of Israel uh, considered God's name so holy they wouldn't pronounce it. So they, they being sinful human beings, just felt like to say God's name was somehow um, at least sacrilegious, probably blasphemous, was how they looked at it. If you look at verse 5, right there in the middle of the verse, or uh, excuse me, the beginning of the verse, let's do that. Now, therefore, what have I here says the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Your, your, Your translation of the Bible should have all capitals right there. That's because God's name occurs right there, YHWH. Mm. Scholars refer to it as uh, the tetragrammaton, God's written name. Now, <clears throat> when the Jews would read this in the ancient text, they would simply say the name when they came to Lord, and this is what I mean. I've done this many times, so forgive me for my repetition. 52 verse 5 would read something like this. Now, therefore, what have I here says the name that my people are taken away for nothing. Rather than pronounce Yahweh or even Lord, when they would come to God's name, they would just insert the phrase, the name, and move on. Um, The Hebrew language, especially at that time, didn't have any vowels. It was all consonants. When you arranged the letters in specific ways, then those vowel sounds were assumed and understood. So, YHWH, God's name, probably had vowel sounds, but they would have been the only ones that knew where they were and how it was pronounced. Because they went for millennia without saying his name or teaching others how to say the name, his name was lost. We don't really know how it was pronounced. You could say Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Okay, uh, that, that's okay, that works all right. I like the fact that when Jesus is teaching the Sermon on the Mount, we you know, get to that point where he tells us, Pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The term hallowed means to be so holy that it is kept secret. Think about that. Hallowed be your name, so holy that it's kept secret. You could say that about God's name to this day. So we've got Yahweh, we've got Jehovah, whatever you want to say. I'm going a long ways for this, but follow. The Jehovah's Witnesses say, oh, yeah, see, we're going to be the ones that are saved because we're Jehovah's Witnesses. You guys are just Christians, some false teaching system. Not true at all. Look at Psalm 138, verse 2. Speaking of God, it says, you have magnified your word above your name. You've magnified your word above your name. More important than what God's name is, is what God's word says. There's also something else about this whole picture that's worthy of understanding. John chapter 1 verse 1 and verse 14 read together, say, In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the word. Jesus became a man and lived amongst us. Jesus, the word, is what we worship. God has magnified his word, Jesus, above even his own name. Look, you read through the New Testament, you get into the book of, you know, 1 John, and you discover that if you don't have the Son, Jesus, in your heart, your mind, your life, then you don't have the Father. If you're rejectant of Jesus, then you're rejectant of God. That's what the scripture is telling us. So when you're reading verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 52, and it says, Therefore, my people shall know my name. I would say to you and myself here this evening the name you need to know is Jesus. You, you need to know who Jesus is. If you don't know who Jesus is, then you're missing the whole point altogether. God became a man, his name was Jesus, he lived amongst us. He allowed himself to be killed for the purpose of resurrection. The most powerful thing in our world is death. You can change a whole lot of other things. You cannot change death. Jesus Christ can. That's the whole point of our religion is knowing that our God became a man to prove the point He had power over sin and death. You got to know the name Jesus. You have to. If you don't, you're not going to experience salvation. 52 7. How beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of Him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Without question, this is referring to Jesus. But if we are men and women who have been born again, subjected ourselves to the lordship and the leadership of Jesus Christ, then that also applies to us. Simply sharing our faith with people, declaring the gospel, giving people the opportunity to know who Jesus is. The world rejects us, but we are those that are most beautiful and the ones that bring good news. Turn on the evening news nowadays, and uh, it's rare you're going to see any good news. It's rare you're going to see any real news, but it's rare you're going to see any good news. Jesus Christ alone is the proclaimer of good news. That term good news is what? the gospel that's what the word gospel means good news Jesus Christ is definitely the king of good news now in verse 8 it says your watchmen shall lift up their voices with their voices they shall sing together for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion now this is in contrast to the fact and we'll move forward in this but When they left out of Israel, particularly the Babylonians, uh, they were mocking them in a way, but the people of Israel were known for their music, and uh, that's something for you to think about, that we are a religion of music. I don't know about you guys, but I, I love to sing worship songs, right? I just I don't things are so busy for me that, uh, you know, sometimes when I come in, especially on uh, the midweek service, I'm kind of like finishing out my day and finishing up the study. And I don't I don't always get to come in and be part of worship to sit and and be able to just sing my heart out to the Lord. It's a huge blessing to me. I, I don't know if you're aware of it or not but Christianity is the one religion of music. The Judeo-Christian system is the religion that bears and teaches its people to worship with music. Uh, What a great blessing. The people of Israel were known for their music and their song. So when Babylon captured them, they asked the people, right? Millions of people being ushered away to Babylon, this death march that they're going to take them all the way over to you know their capital city and they're asking them sing us a song <laughs> you're being taken away as slaves we've robbed you of your home we've stripped you naked now we're death marching you but man you guys got good music could you sing us a song they literally as they traveled took their hearts and their lyres, and they just hung them in the trees as a statement that we're not going to need these anymore. Music is not going to be a thing that emanates out of us. We're not going to be known as a worshipful and joyous people anymore. God is saying to them right here, it's time to sing again. Do you know what that's like? Where all the joy has been drained out of you, and you're just, you're dead It's just all difficult and hard and painful. And to even hear someone else sing invokes anger. (laughs) Just shut up. And then there comes that point where the Lord reignites that. And the song springs out of your heart. And the tears run down your face. And you're filled with the joy of the Lord again. It's a beautiful thing. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying. You're going to come to a place where we all see eye to eye the way we should. And you're going to worship me, break forth in joy, sing together, your waste place of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of of the lord this idea of making bare his arm is the idea of almost like someone you know of tremendous strength like pulling up their sleeve and showing you how powerful they are the lord has laid bare his arm he's shown his strength he's established who he is and he's redeemed his people and granted them salvation i think Every one of us probably experiences this. Also, we come to a place in our life where we surrender uh, to the Lord, and suddenly we see God sort of in the flesh. You know, not but you see Him working in your environment. You know, God is on your side, and and suddenly your heart is filled with that joy of, oh, I have not been abandoned. I have not offended God so grievously that he has written me off. He has disciplined me and corrected me and brought me to this place. And now I know his strength. And now I know his salvation. It's a blessed thing. It's a wonderful, merciful behavior of God. 52.11, depart. Depart. Get out from there. Now, before we move on. When the scripture declares a thing twice, um, the Jews wrote it in such a way that anyone that would read that would um, they would add volume and intensity to it. You can see two exclamation points, right? Depart exclamation point, depart exclamation point. Um, the, the idea is if you weren't paying attention, wake up and pay it, you know, attention. Depart, depart, yeah, you know, verily, verily. I say unto you, surely, surely, the Lord is saying, supposed to grab your attention, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing that is spiritually, like a sinful thing. Go out from the midst of her, be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. So interesting, because Elteshazzar, king of Babylon, Defiant of the Medo-Persian Empire, which is outside his walls. And just so we understand, the walls of Babylon, you know, in most places were a minimum of 80 feet tall. They could race chariots on the upper wall five wide. They did it annually. So their whole idea of, um, yeah, the Medo-Persian Empire is outside, so what? You look at the fortifications and you can kind of think along those lines, right? You take the United States military, right? Um, I'm reaching back to the last time I looked at our uh, budget. I don't know how many years ago it was. Uh, $658 billion. Okay. That's more money than the next 13 nations combined. China and Russia are included in those 13 nations. We eclipse everyone in our military spending. You know, our technology is crazy. The F35, right, stealth fighter that has a that has a spherical display for they call it a 360 degree spherical display for the pilots. So, helmet on flying the aircraft, uh he can look down like that and see what's there. Everywhere he looks, he is capable of seeing or she is seeing when flying. You know, takes off vertically. There's so much to uh, our technology and what we're capable of. And yesterday we celebrated celebrated in remembrance. We mourned 18 years since uh, 9-11. Where... 19 people just boarded airplanes and surpassed all of our military budget. Killed more people on U.S. soil than any other attack in history. You know, here's the Lord saying to, you know, this nation, um, you know, you're going to depart from there. Take the vessels with you. Belteshazzar, seeing the Medo-Persian Empire outside his walls, told his servants, go find all the vessels made of gold that were used by the Jewish people in their worship of God and bring them here. And they brought them in, and these articles were supposed to be used by the priests in their preparation and service to the Lord. And Belshazzar's filling them with wine and celebrating with his friends and getting drunk when there's Cyrus conquering them. Cyrus gets word, God spoke of you 200 years ago, like I said earlier, now he declares you're going to be set free and what's the first thing that he allows? The rebuilding of the temple. Gather all those articles and vessels of worship that Belteshazzar was using to, uh, you know, uh, celebrate and get drunk and take them back to where they can be used to worship the Lord. Such an interesting poetic justice that God brings. Don't touch the unclean things, the sinful things. Be clean yourself, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. This is sort of like they're all slaves and they have to remember, oh, wait. Um, We're priests. And I mean like have to literally remember because most of the priests have passed away during the 70 years that they've been in captivity. So people have to be like, oh, I'm of the tribe of Levi. Right. If we're going to rebuild the temple, I would be a priest. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. No, I'm not talking about the Babylonian king. I'm talking about my priests. Get the priests out here. Let's get those guys going for you shall Not go out without haste, nor go by flight. For the Lord will go before you, and God of Israel will be your rear guard. Now this um, idea that ends up taking place, Nehemiah is the one who receives permission to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And when they go, any of you that have studied Nehemiah, know that he goes to the king and says i'm going to need written articles from you that say that we're supposed to go back to jerusalem because there's going to be tremendous opposition to us re-establishing uh you know jerusalem and israel so he gives him letters so that when men come and try to halt or intimidate them they can say no we're here by the king's authority we're not here doing this of our own volition God is literally before them and behind them protecting them making sure that they're able to get to this place and do the Lord's will. 52:13. Now, it's kind of an unfortunate chapter break because this begins if you if you're wondering about like how the chapters are set up in the Bible, uh the the authors of the Bible simply wrote their letters. Uh, to the people. It was the scholars that later wanted us to be able to find our way around in the Bible, where they divided each of the books up into chapters and verses, so we can get right to a specific reference uh, quickly. So uh, 52.13 actually begins a discussion about this sin-bearing servant, which is Quite obviously jesus in the description so you know 53 really carries that idea but it begins here in 52 at verse 13 behold my servant shall deal prudently he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high just as many uh, just as many were astonished at him so his visage his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. His appearance, uh, the way that's described, is going to be more destroyed than any other person. Now, again, I, I don't do this just to be graphic, but Jesus Christ was horribly brutalized in his crucifixion. It wasn't just go to the cross and put nails in his hands and his feet. Uh, there was a beating and a scur- a whipping, a scourging, uh, that started the night before and went all the way to the crucifixion. It's a horrendous thing. Uh, when you come to verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations? Uh, that's, uh, to me, quite a thought, because when Moses gets done uh, recording and writing the law... Of God. God commands him to take the lamb of sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the book and upon the people and upon the priests and upon the tabernacle and upon the articles. And there's just blood sprinkled on everything. It's a religion of blood because we were destined to die and be sent to hell. Our blood was going to be the payment. Our blood was going to be the payment for our sin. And Jesus Christ stepped in between sin and us and took the full force of that death himself. So when this religion begins being established, God says, I want everything sprinkled with blood. Why? Because these people were going to have to pay with their blood, but instead my son paid with his blood. Sacrificially died for their sake. That bloodshed began in the Garden of Gethsemane when he knew the cross was coming and he began to pray. And the intensity of that struggle caused him to break capillaries in his skin and begin to sweat great drops of blood. If you think that that's just some poetic thing that Christian scholars made up, uh, my middle daughter, Rebecca, was... Well, she's not here. She can chew me out for this later. She was so stubborn when she was little, and I mean when she was little, that there were a handful of occasions where as she and I or her mother and her were duking it out with one another verbally, that this little girl would get so stressed that she would break capillaries in her face and bleed through her skin. So then I look it up medically, and it's actually fairly common. People underneath unthinkable stress will burst the capillaries in all of their skin layer. So what Jesus Christ experienced isn't some poetic thing Christians made up. He literally experienced it. And that bloodshed does not stop until that Roman soldier jams that spear in his side and blood and water pour out. He's taken to the house of Caiaphas, and he's beaten, and they put a bag over his head, and they're punching him out, and they rip his beard out of his head, and then they scourge him with a cat of nine tails, a whip that breaks into nine strands and has glass and bone and ceramic all braided into it, so it just rips your flesh apart. Scourging was a form of execution. The Romans used it to kill people. They would tear your flesh open and then come up in real polite say, so do you want to confess your crime now? And almost everybody did, right? Because just you want the whipping to stop. It just Even if you didn't do it, you tell them that you did, if they'll stop whipping you. Or Jesus didn't have any sin to confess other than mine or yours. Then he was tortured, taken to the cross. When we say nails driven through his hands, it was actually driven through his wrist. The Romans learned that early on. Because you know, a metacarpal bone right there, you put the nail right there, and the whole of a human body will hang on that nail. Spear driven through his side, water and blood gushed out. His visage was so marred that when Pilate had him scourged, because they whip your face and your head, and your whole body. They would strip you naked and tear your flesh apart. That's how they scourged people. When they put the purple robe on him after he'd been all torn up and he was just a bloody mess from head to foot, crown of thorns pounded into his head, we read that Pilate brought him out, and it says, Behold the man. The Greek language actually says that Pilate brought him out and said to the crowd, this really is the guy that you gave me. Because you couldn't recognize him. He's just a ball of shredded skin standing there, just seething blood. His visage was marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of man. Torn apart for our sake. So he shall sprinkle many nations by his visage being marred. Many nations, right? Not just Israel, because they rejected their Messiah. And the apostles received the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then you turn the pages and get to Acts chapter 10. And Peter goes to the house of a Gentile. And he preaches. And they become Christians. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Gentile church is born. And then many nations become Christian, right? There's probably no Jews in the room tonight. Well, one, right? Few of us, few of us. The rest of us are from many nations. We have been brought in by the destruction of Jesus Christ. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. Oh, yeah, Pilate and Herod. Both were silenced by Jesus and his appearance before them. For what have had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. I wonder if that applies specifically to those two kings being mentioned. Yeah. They didn't know who the Messiah was or a lot about who Jesus was going to be or what he was going to do. Herod just wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle, right? Pilate's in the midst of the thing. He knows Jesus is innocent. He knows he's not going to get away with letting him go. He discovers that Jesus is a Galilean and remembers, hey, that's Herod's district, and Herod just happens to be in town. So somebody please take Jesus to Herod. Go to Herod. Herod literally is asking, show me a sign. Do a miracle. Jesus says nothing in front of him. He's silent before Herod. Herod's frustrated, sends him back to Pilate. Pilate tries to wash his hands. Has Jesus crucified? Many nations and these kings, they're going to see what they didn't previously know. They're going to be given the opportunity to see Jesus face to face. Now in 53 verse 1. Who has believed our report? Now, this is God speaking, and it's in the plural sense. Whose report? Well, some people go, well, the angels. God gave the angels his message, and they came and ministered, and so, you know, it's kind of heaven. No, this is the plural sense of God. Who has believed our report? Right, Because it's God's report. It's not the angels' report. Right? If I write a report and hand it to you and you deliver it to somebody, you don't arrive and hand it to them and say, hey, I brought you our report. If Will wrote it, it's Will's report. The report within the scripture and the message of the prophets is God's report alone. And yet it's listed as a plural. Why? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's our report, their report is what I'm trying to say. Who has believed our report? Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was so plain that they couldn't even identify him. And he's been in the temple every day preaching. He's been three years in Israel, sharing his message with the entire nation. Thousands have flocked to him at a time. Multiple thousands have flocked to him at times. And yet, when it comes time to erase, you know, arrest him, uh, you know, basically people are saying, "So, so what does he look like now?" If it was like any of the pictures we would see, it'd be very easy. For them to go arrest him, right? Oh, it's easy. It's going to be a whole bunch of Jewish guys, and then there'll be that one really European-looking dude. Arrest that guy, you know? He's way taller than everybody else. He's blonde and has blue eyes, you know, depending on what picture you've seen of Jesus. yeah. Oh, you'll see him. It's dark. He's got a halo. He glows. You know, you just, you'll find him. No, no, so much so they can't identify him that Judas has to tell, right? Because they're like, probably, I'm making this up, but you know, probably like, so what's he look like? Oh, medium height, medium build, average hair, average eyes. He's average. I got nothing. You know what I'm saying? he just like, I don't know. Like, you ever see those drawings of the Unabomber? How are you ever going to identify that guy? You know what I'm saying? Why even draw the picture? Sunglasses, mustache, hoodie tucked right around like this. I saw that guy at the mall. You know, I just. A, the, the description's so generic, nobody can identify him. Judas has to tell them, oh, I'll, I'll show you who he is. I'll walk right up to him and kiss him. Arrest that guy. There's nothing about him that would cause anybody to say, oh, I gotta follow this guy. Plain, ordinary. Very, very much run of the mill. He had no form of calmness. When uh, we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And that's what the world is still doing to this day. That's, That's how the world thinks of jesus this ridiculous meaningless historical figure that i really don't even want to pay attention to the world's going to pay attention to jesus and they're going to pay attention very soon because he's coming back the same as it's predicted right here hundreds of years before he was born it was predicted that he would come again and he is coming again. 53.4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Literally, they were saying he's got to be evil. There's no way that he would experience this type of punishment and persecution unless he'd done something wrong. We're, we're like that as human beings. We automatically think along those lines. If someone is incredibly successful and wealthy, we, we very often think, well, they, they must be, like, really smart and really good. If, if they are, like, low and poor and humble, we think, well, they, they probably had it coming to them. We're like that. We, we elevate for the wrong reasons and we put people down for the wrong reasons. And and Jesus was the creator of all things, and the world hated him. It right? comes down to it. Now, do you want the Prince of Life, who's been performing miracles and raising the dead, and you know, healing all of your sick and feeding thousands? Do you want the Prince of Life, who created all things, or 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 would you prefer to have a thief who you know started a rebellion? against rome that almost cost you all your lives who murdered people in the process and they go yeah we want barabbas the murderer but not this prince of life and and that's how the world treats jesus they reject him and they think that he's afflicted smitten by god but he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquity our sin. The chastisement, the punishment for our peace was upon him so that we could have peace with God, so we could have peace with our lives. And by his stripes, we are healed. Now, that healing, I've heard it applied to when people are sick, and it certainly does have some of that, but it's the spiritual healing that's being referenced there. We're all sick spiritually, and we are healed by Jesus Christ crushing and crucifixion all we like sheep have gone astray you know how sheep go astray they lose sight of their master and that's it where'd the shepherd go don't know i'm totally lost now they don't the sheep don't know where the barn is you ever seen cows right they they, i mean it's so automated right now that they they come back and walk into the the milking uh, corral and and race straight in and they just hook them up on uh, the pump and they go around a few times and then out the other door and out into pasture and they're out there and at some point you know one of them checks their watch and says okay time to go back to the barn and they just automatically they know where the barn is they know where the food is the sheep don't. Literally, wander out to the other end of the pasture, and uh, looks like everything else that they see. They, They have to go herd them back. They have to go get them with dogs and shepherds. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Just, where is Jesus? Don't know. Totally lost now. Got no idea. Quite a statement about us. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ took all of our sin. Verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Understand this. Jesus Christ said, no one's taking my life away from me. Long before they crucified him, he said, they're going to crucify me. I'm going to be betrayed into their hands. And I'm going to be crucified. He said it that plainly. They they were flabbergasted by that. He said, I will lay my life down. And when I'm ready, I'll take it back up. That's why he stood in front of Pilate and said almost nothing. That's why he stood in front of Herod and said absolutely nothing. Because his focus was getting to Calvary. He knew that was the goal. And he was set upon it. He was taken like a lamb to the slaughter. He was taken from prison and from judgment. So he was incarcerated just for a matter of hours, but he was imprisoned and he was put under judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich. At his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, now, I might ask you to turn with me to John chapter nineteen. There are a number of things said here in a few verses that are significant to what we just read. so while you're turning to John chapter nineteen, I just want to read that again, and if you can listen, it says. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence. Now, Jesus Christ's death was with the wicked. He was crucified between two thieves like a common criminal. When the Romans crucified people, they posted their crime above their head. And the point was so that when people saw it, they would say, I'm never doing that. You know, if it if it says shoplifter above your head and you're there dying on the cross, um you're gonna say to yourself, I'm never shoplifting. Okay. If you're not aware of it, the Romans crucified very publicly, very publicly. There were times where they would keep Prisoners until they had uh, several. they didn't want to just you know sentence a guy, okay, you need to be crucified crucified. Take one guy and nail him to the cross. Yeah, that that's quite a statement. But if you take fifteen people and you divide them into two groups and you put eight of them at the city's exit, and you crucify them on both sides of the road, and then you take seven of them at the city's entrance and you crucify them on each side of the road then everybody that's coming in or going out of town is going to see these people and i do mean they're going to see them dying there are recorded instances in history where people hung on the cross for more than seven days alive talking with people that were passing by begging for them to to bring them water. The Roman soldiers are guarding them so no one can help them, no one can bring them anything. That's a talking billboard for Rome right there that says never do any of those crimes. You got seven people hanging there and you got a thief and a murderer and you know uh, their crimes what's Jesus crime? King of the Jews. That's what was posted above his head. King of the Jews. The Jews wanted it to say, he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, what I've written is what I've said. That's what's going to be put above his head. It was an example to the world to see these people crucified. Jesus is in that process of being crucified amongst the wicked. But then a very wealthy man comes. John chapter 19 verse 38 after this the crucifixion joseph of arimathea being a disciple of jesus but secretly for fear of the jews asked pilate that he might take away the body of jesus and pilate gave him permission so he came and took the body of jesus and nicodemus john chapter 3 who at first came to jesus by night also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, and embalming materials, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen and spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And they buried Jesus there. Joseph of Arimathea is recorded in history as being one of the wealthiest men in Jerusalem. Uh, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews, and Flavius Josephus recorded that when Nicodemus' daughter was married, it was the greatest celebration that Israel had ever seen. Money, wealth, power. These men buried Jesus apparently in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, right? Joseph of Arimathea can't bury Jesus in somebody else's tomb. He's got no legal right to do that. But he does have the legal right to bury Jesus in his own tomb, which he's prepared for himself. Puts Jesus there. Hundreds of years before Jesus is even born, here's Isaiah saying, Yeah, he's going to be killed amongst criminals and buried where the wealthy are buried. That's quite a thing that the scripture would record that. We'll close the chapter out. Look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Not didn't make God happy. It's the idea that God knew the salvation that was going to come as a result of this crucifixion. So that blessed the Lord my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul on unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for transgressions. God was blessed with the fact that his son was willing to take on all of the world's sin and pay the cost in order to redeem anyone that would accept it. He wrote a check, essentially, for the whole world's sin. It's so unfortunate that so many people have that opportunity but just never cash in. They don't allow Jesus Christ to forgive them. They think that this whole religion is somehow a made-up story. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Jesus Christ is not just another historic religious figure. All of the others are literally trying to imitate Jesus. Jesus is the source of the whole world's salvation. And if we would look into that and understand that, we could experience the great benefits that are described right there in our lives today. Let Jesus Christ be your master, your king, your deliverer, your salvation. Change your whole life in the process. Amen? Amen. Well, we'll pick up at 54 next week. Why don't we stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for your word, for your love, for your concern and your caring for us. I pray that you would give us your strength, help us, guide us. Lord, we we need your direction. We need your vision rather than our own. We don't want to follow in our own way going astray. We want to experience your direction and your fulfillment in our lives. Perform that work. Bring us to yourself. May your kingdom come and your will be done in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.